Hello ladies and gentlemen my name is Nishtha Gautam and I'm the opinions editor at the Quint and today I have a very very special offering by way of an interview with an extremely special guest without further ado let me introduce him I am joined today by Mr Amitav Ghosh celebrated Indian author also a gyanpeet awardee who is ready with his new book at the stalls and the book is already getting rave reviews because it talks about the way we live now and how it has changed over many centuries the book is called the nutmeg's curse and it talks about climate change history of colonialism and how society has changed over a period of time so let's get this conversation rolling many congratulations sir thank you thank you nishtha and it's always a delight to await a new book that uh, amitav ghosh is writing and i'm sure i'm not the only one who gets excited <laughs> every time there is an announcement That's so sweet of you. Thank you. That's really sweet. Since I have been following you over, uh, you know, since I I studied uh, shadow lines as part of my um, curriculum as a student oh, okay. of English honors, and um, having read everything that you have ever written. Oh my goodness! A, really? Yes. <laughs> there is oh, a wow. there is a clear shift, and it is quite palpable. Mm-hmm. from amitabh ghosh the weaver of tales of uh, history of people to amitabh ghosh who is almost straddling the world of climate activism mm. in his own manner i must add <laughs> yes do you yes, do you um, get to hear that often i think certainly there's been a huge sort of i mean you know uh, uh, i it what you would expect i mean you know it's uh, people change over the years uh, as you grow older but far more than that i would say that really you know that it's not me changing uh, it's the planet changing you know uh, that has made this happen to me because uh, uh, you know i was going along just fine but uh, now as you can see uh, all these things are just uh, happening around the um, around the world and they they force themselves on your attention you can't escape them you know the world we live in today is not the world we live in uh, we lived in when i wrote uh, the shadow lines you know it's a completely changed uh, the planet itself has changed when did you first realize that things were not as they used to be around you well you know there were two things i, I suppose because you know it's not just uh, it's not just climate change that has uh, uh, changed the world uh, there's been a deep and fundamental shift in global politics and geopolitics even you know so there were two things i imagine one of course is uh, uh, was that in 2000 i went to the uh, to the sundarbans uh, you know in in connection with my research for the hungry tide and in the sundarbans you know 
are the effects of climate change are sort of uh, just uh, ever pre ever present. They, uh, you could see them quite clearly. You know, saltwater intrusion, uh, the changes in species. All of this was very much uh, uh, visible there. So you know, that was when I started to take this whole issue of climate change uh, seriously. You know, the second thing I would say. I was uh, at 9/11. You know, I was in I was in New York uh, the day it happened, and you know. So on the one hand, you have the change uh, in the natural uh, phenomena on the planet, and and on the other hand, you have this dramatic sort of development in the politics and geopolitics of the planet. So both were you know profound shocks, I would say. Right, and they almost happened around the same time. Because if correct me if I'm wrong, hungry tide hmm. came uh, in the early part of two thousand and four, five. It came out in two thousand and four, in fact, and just yes. before, yeah. just before the great tsunami. <laughs> you know, hmm. that was also uh, that was also something which uh, had a profound impact. You know, uh, I think on uh, many of us, but. Certainly, it did on me because uh, you know, hungry tide ends with a with that great a storm surge, a great wave, which uh, uh, you know they barely survive. Uh, and uh, you know, then the tsunami happened just shortly after that, and a lot of people you know wrote to me at the time saying, "Oh my God, it's just uncanny uh, that these things, uh, 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 what's happened is so similar to what you describe in the book." Exactly, and I was actually going to come to that because I remember the the conversation around the book uh, at that point in time, and a similar mm. conversation I think should happen around your last book, um, Gun Island, because uh, you're talking about mm. flooding of uh, European cities, Italy in particular, mm. and uh, yes, we, yes. Have, we have seen terrible uh, scenes from from across Europe where. Rainfall has just wreaked havoc in in most of these cities that that never expected to be flooded. You're absolutely right. Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, well, first about Gun Island. You know, in Gun Island, uh, uh, some of the things uh, that happen in uh, that have been happening these last uh, few years are again so uncanny. Because you know, uh, in Gun Island, I wrote about uh, a fire approaching the Getty uh, the Getty Museum in Los Angeles, and that actually happened. But it happened like six months after I wrote that chapter. So you know, it was so strange and so disturbing in a way to see something that you'd been thinking about in your head suddenly play out in real life. So that was a that was a very strange thing. But also, as a as, you know, exactly as you say. Uh, what's happening in Europe uh, is also really startling. You know, uh, you must have seen this uh, uh, footage from these recent floods in Germany. Uh, you know, in an area that's always been very tranquil, and then suddenly you have this incredible flash flood. Uh, uh, you know, just uh, going through this town and uh, taking away you know these uh, uh, these uh, these houses and buildings which have been there for centuries. Suddenly, just sweeping them away, right. and I saw an I saw an interview with a woman uh, whose house had been swept away, and she was in shock. And she was saying, "You know, we never expect these things to happen in Germany. We expect them to happen somewhere else." And you know, that's really the strange thing that there is nowhere else now. 
This exactly. is everywhere. It's happening exactly. all around us. Yeah. However, uh, and um, you know the the latest book. You know when I was reading it, um, mm. it also uh, seemed like a, a very harsh indictment of this development politics. And I'm not talking mm. about politics which is uh, restricted only to nation states. It's it's a global politics, really. So yeah. colonialism had development at the you know at least as as an ostentatious reason to go mm. and uh, conquer these lands which are wild and savage and and whatnot. So uh, mm. the white man burden had to be carried. Yes, and, that's right. And now we see these uh, uh, parallels in the, uh, you know, in the in the contemporary times, in our own times, where, again, a development politics of a different kind, is making matters worse. It's it's almost accelerating the speed of uh, decimation of this planet. That is absolutely right. I mean, actually, that's really uh, a, a very large part of the problem. Uh, you know, the, the impacts that are occurring uh, in particular places are not just climate change impacts, they're also impact in anthropogenic impacts. Uh, you just take the case of uh, these terrible floods in Chennai or Mumbai, you know. Uh, uh, in Chennai, uh, you know, when you, have, uh, when you have these floods, it's largely because, uh, uh, you know, uh, channels, drainage channels have been built over, river channels have been built over, have been constrained in so many ways. Uh, the same is true uh, in Mumbai. So, you know, exactly what uh, one of the one of the major problems is, in fact, uh, this kind of misplaced uh, uh, model of development, where you think you can just hold back uh, uh, rivers, where you can hold back the natural uh, flow of water. But as they always say, uh, you know, it's uh, nature bat, bats last. Mm -hmm. And that's really the thing. I mean, that's what we are seeing now. It's like nature has suddenly decided that enough already, you know, uh, it's going to strike back. But uh, what has actually not changed is the fact that wealthy nations or wealthy individuals can shrug their mm. responsibilities very easily and say, oh, you are the poor one, you are the one who's uh, using mm. a chulha instead of clean energy, or you are the one who's right. driving a tractor which runs on diesel. So you mm. should be the one taking steps while, you know, I'm driving my Tesla. So mm. I have already done my bit to, um, you know, to keep this planet safe. How do you feel about this, this sort of phony concern for uh, climate change and environment whereas you you as in uh, the wealthy nations or wealthy individuals have been um, the originator as it were of the problem it's completely a case of blaming the victim you know that is what it is they're blaming the victims this is exactly you're absolutely right that you know there is this kind of greenwashing uh, whereby you know someone will buy a tesla and say that it shrinks the uh, carbon footprint but it's it's complete nonsense uh, you know the tesla the embodied emissions in producing a tesla are enormous the battery that's in the tesla 
you know, what does it use? It has a huge footprint, not just in terms of carbon, uh, but also in terms of rare earths and minerals and so on. I mean, anyone who has ever been in the Tesla will know that, you know, saving energy is the last thing on the mind of the designers of a Tesla. You know, I mean, even the, even the doors uh, op use energy to open. So, yeah, I, I think this is what has actually happened. In fact, I mean, you know, uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in developed countries, in the rich world and amongst uh, rich people in, uh, in Asia, uh, there's this enormous kind of uh, greenwashing that is underway, you know, uh, you know, a sort of pretense of doing something for the environment. Can we, can we be a little provocative and ask you, who do you think is the biggest culprit? Would you say the United States or Europe? The biggest culprit in uh, most senses is, in fact, uh, the, United, uh, is the United Kingdom. You know, e even though it has a very small, uh, uh, I mean, comparatively a, a population that's small in relation to, uh, to India and China, uh, the U United Kingdom has a is very high up on the list of uh, uh, of uh, countries that are responsible for historic emissions. You know, this is the thing we have to we have to keep in mind always. You know that uh, greenhouse gases have a very long life. It's not like you know uh, you pour some dirt in a river and then uh, take the dirt out. I mean that can be done. But greenhouse gases can't be taken out of the uh, out of the uh, out of the environment environment in that day. So what the the United Kingdom was doing uh, in the 19th century is still with us. You know those are historic emissions. So the United Kingdom led the way uh, in uh, uh, you know both in inventing the technology for which they long patted themselves on their back and said, oh, we are so brilliant. We came up with. Uh, uh, you know, all this industrial machinery, and now we are paying the price of all this. You know, the whole world is paying the price of all this. Uh, vulnerable people, especially around the world. So the United Kingdom is very high up on the list of uh, historic emissions. The United States is actually on, uh, uh, at the top of the list of historic, historic emissions. And there can be no doubt uh, that, uh, you know, they uh, have an enormous responsibility for all of this. And, and that responsibility is ongoing, you know. But so too uh, does, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, Russia, you know, Russia has huge uh, uh, historic uh, uh, emissions, so does Germany and so on. So basically, it's the countries that, it, that industrialized first and that grew rich first, that bear most of the responsibility. This is not to exonerate China or India or Indonesia. You know, we also bear a responsibility to, uh, to this day. But I think the way to think about this is exactly the terms that were laid out by, uh, by Sunita Narayan and Anil Agarwal in their, uh, in, their, uh, in their pamphlet a long, long time ago. It's the seminal contribution uh, where they basically talk about common but differentiated responsibility, you know? So, I mean, China to this day, even though it's the now the, uh, in gross terms, the world's largest polluter, uh, in per capita terms, uh, it's, uh, uh, their emissions are a fraction of those of countries that are like the United States, you know. Uh, India's uh, uh, per capita emissions are even smaller. But again, we have to remember that middle class and, uh, uh, and wealthy Indians, their carbon footprint is just as big. 
uh, as that of uh, you know Americans or uh, or Saudis for that matter. Right. Um, let me be a little provocative here and ask you: Do hmm. you, by um, you know, by assigning and ascribing blame to nations that uh, adopted technology early on hmm. and then um, uh, shared, thus share the blame for changing the planet? Do you feel that you could be mistaken for being anti-technology or anti-science by extension? Um, <laughs> look, the whole history of technology is one of disastrous unintended consequences. We see this constantly. So for a, time, for, for a long time, it was thought that building giant dams, for example, was a great thing. Now, across the United States, they're actually dismantling dams because, again, because, uh, you know, keeping up those dams has proved to be uh, unsustainable. Similarly, you look, let's just take individual examples. You know, let's take uh, the, uh, the water pumps, you know, uh, especially fossil fuel powered water pumps, which we have in, uh, which we have in India. And uh, you know, which has also been very important in uh, in American agriculture. So, what has the fossil fuel-powered water pump led to? Uh, you know, uh, in India, for example, what it led to is farmers just started neglecting overland irrigation and started concentrating on uh, you know just pumping up huge amounts of water with uh, subsidized electricity. So now, you know, <clears throat> the unintended consequence is that the upper Ganga aquifer on which you know 300 million people depend for the, for their life uh, for their sustenance and livelihood uh, stretching from northern india into uh, into pakistan now the upper ganga aquifer is almost depleted so you know at the time it seemed like this this was a great technological blessing you know this uh, this water pump now we see it was uh, it was a disaster created conditions for a disaster so this is often the case, you know, with certain kinds of technological innovation, that they seem wonderful at the time, oh, you have a brand new toy, something is great, and so on. But over time, you see that it leads to this kind of absolute disaster. The same has happened in the United States. You know, uh, the entire Great Plains region of the United States, which, uh, uh, you know, historically was, you know, semi-arid. Uh, you couldn't really uh, grow much uh, in the Great Plains. And I'm near the Great Plains right now. I'm sitting in Utah, uh, you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, in the, uh, starting in the 1940s, again, depending on these uh, uh, mechanical water pumps, uh, especially gas-powered water pumps, they started pumping up enormous quantities of water from the Ogallala Aquifer. Uh, the Ogallala Aquifer is now, again, almost exhausted. Right. You know? So, you know, something that seems, uh, seems wonderful at the time can actually prove to be disastrous in the long run. Uh, the British thought that making the, uh, the great Upper Ganga canals and so on was a great idea. And at the time it seemed like a great idea. Now, it, uh, now we see that the long-term environmental impacts of those canals uh, are anything but benign, you know? Right. Um, another thing, which is um, you know specific to the to the book here, you talk about uh, 
the process of colonization and uh, you, you, you talked about Banda Islands and um, you know the Dutch uh, settlement there. Mm. Something similar happened in Mumbai. You know the the way the islands were created artificially. You know they were they were brought together and. Uh, it just again, as you said, it seemed like a great idea back then. <laughs> it isn't all that great at the moment. But where do you think that this foresight can come from? Because you only learn as you go along. Would anyone no, have thought uh, that it would be disastrous then? Yes, people had thought. Uh, that's why, uh, you know, our ancestors didn't build a big city over there. You know, because people knew that, uh, you know, the sea is not something that you play with, you know, that it's a dangerous thing. The reason that the British, even the Portuguese didn't build uh, where, uh, where Bombay is now, you know, they built on the mainland in Vasai, in what is now, uh, you know, what is now Vasai, what, what they called Basain. And this was a very wise thing because, uh, you know, Vasai is not as vulnerable as the rest of Mumbai. But it was the British, you know, who created, who came there, who thought, oh, we are so clever, we can, uh, we can do reclamation and so on. And, and they put, uh, they joined these six islands together. Uh, and now we see that these six islands are actually slowly reverting back to the sea. The sea is what is reclaiming, uh, reclaiming its own, you know. You know, if you look at the historic ports of India, none of them are cited in this way. You look at Cochin, you know, which is a very old port. Uh, Cochin is, uh, you know, uh, in, a, in a very protected location. Uh, you look at Surat, which is a very old port. Again, it's a very protected location. All the inland ports of uh, Bengal, uh, you know, they were very far inland. Uh, you know, there, there, there was this terrible Fukushima disaster. Yes. You know, uh, so in that very site, uh, you know, up the hillside, uh, you know, there are these stone markers, you know, centuries old stone markers left behind by a medieval J uh, Japanese people. And what this what it says on the stone marker is do not build below this line because uh, they, uh, they are, anything you build there is likely to be hit by a tsunami. So, you know, the, the Japanese, uh, the ancestors of uh, today's uh, uh, Japanese had the foresight to understand this. But today's Japanese, what did they do? Not only did they build below that line, they built uh, this, uh, this giant nuclear plant, you know, which is still leaking radioactivity into the ocean. Right. So, you know, and it must have seemed like a great idea at the time, you know. Um, you know, climate change and um, change in lifestyle and geopolitical changes, they have also brought about a very um, radical change to our food habits and I want to talk about the 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 lovely title of your book hmm. the nutmeg is a beautiful spice and you know you can't yeah. now think about so many fancy things without nutmeg and uh, one of them being the pumpkin spice latte which is yes of course oh, yeah. all the all the rage of the world across hmm. Yeah. Now, do, you, do you feel that the way we are eating and we are growing food, there is also some sort of culpability there too? Uh, yes, uh, uh, yes, I think we are heading for a huge food, uh, food production disaster, you know. 
I mean, you look at the farmers, you look at the farmers' protests. Ultimately, you know, large tracts of land in Punjab are becoming uncultivable. Again, we see here the unintended consequences of technology. The green, the green revolution, revolution was, yeah. it was thought to be a great idea at the time, but now as more and more research emerges, we see that it was also, it also created the groundwork for a disaster because the green revolution depends hugely uh, on uh, technological inputs. Uh, most of all, it depends on, you know, pumping up water, uh, using fossil fuel based uh, fertilizers and pesticides and so on. And that model is not sustainable in the long run. And that's really what, uh, what is behind uh, ultimately these enormous uh, protests that we are seeing. I mean, essentially these farmers are uh, losing uh, their means of livelihood. Uh, this is going to be the case in the United States as well. Already we can see, can you, can you imagine in California, the richest farmland uh, is the, are the vineyards, you know. Uh, now, because of the wildfires, uh, uh, they, uh, they can barely grow one, uh, um, uh, grapes anymore. Uh, this year, they had to uh, had to spray had to spray sunblock on the grapes because of the extreme heat. I mean, so you know, these things may seem to be a huge uh, a gift at a certain point, but the way that water is being used, the way that we're using all kinds of inputs, uh, it's just completely unsustainable. Right. My last question, sir, is are hmm. we going to uh, see a return of uh, Amitav Ghosh of the shadow lines or do we see Amitav Ghosh of the Hungry Tide and Gun Island and other uh, books, including the Nutmeg's Curse, <laughs> coming out uh, <laughs> you know, as, as a full-fledged writer on climate issues in his own way? <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's, the issues in the nutmeg curse aren't just climate issues, because uh, as Margaret Atwood says, you know, it's not just climate change, it's everything change. We're in the midst of a planetary crisis, you know, and it's, get, it's, sad, it's sad to say, but when you've studied this thing in detail, you can see that things are really heading in a very, very bad direction, you know. And uh, not just environmentally, but politically, and in every way, every possible way, we are going through a, a, an incredible destabilization of the world, you know, and we have to be aware of it. You know, Epicurus, uh, the, the ancient philosopher famously said, uh, you never step in the same river twice, you know. Yes, and, because you are uh, a changed man <laughs> the next time you come. And the river and, is and changed. The river is changed. <laughs> Yeah. So no, you'll never see the Amitabh Ghosh of Shadow Lines again. Uh, this <laughs> won't happen. <laughs> and do you think COP26 that is that is happening is a step towards uh, getting the river back, metaphorically speaking? <clears throat> no, I, you know, already now you can see the huge roadblocks it's run into. Bolsonaro is now going to demand that Brazil be paid for uh, preserving the Amazon. Can you imagine? Yes. So already we see these new kinds of uh, roadblocks arising. In any case, Saudi Arabia has meddled with the language and already diluted the language uh, that was being proposed. So, you know, from India, I think we can, uh, we can expect a lot of greenwashing because we can see also the forests are being opened up to, to coal mines. So, you know, without, without being pessimistic, 
I think just being realistic, uh, you know, I think this COP26 is going to be no better than any of the other earlier meetings. I'm sorry to say. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. As I, as I said, that uh, um, the the job of a storyteller is not to tell tales that please, but these are tales that need to be told and time and again. Yeah, that's right. That's right. For the sake of our children and grandchildren, we, we have to wake up, you know. Thank okay. you so Lovely much. Okay, to talk to you, Nishta. Thank you. Thanks a Thank lot. You. Thanks for your time, Thank sir. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. Goodbye.